0: Hey guys, welcome to episode number 34 of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. This is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach. In today's episode, you're going to hear from Dr. Timothy Hewitt, who is a world leader in the field of ACL research. Not only does Tim have over a decade of experience at the elite level as both a practitioner and researcher, he has over 500 publications to his name on ResearchGate He's received numerous awards from the American Orthopaedic Society and now he is responsible for heading up ACL research at the world famous Mayo Clinic, which is a world leader in medical research, innovation and development. If you've ever worked in sport, played sport or even know people who are involved in sport, you will know that the ACL is an extremely serious injury for an athlete to suffer. It has the capacity to end careers and even in the best case scenario, it's going to entail a lot of rehab, a lot of work. And it's an extremely arduous process to go through as a coach or an athlete. So for that reason, I wanted to sit down with Tim to learn more about his work and to hopefully share the largest amount of high quality information possible to people listening to this podcast so that we can raise the standard of ACL rehab in the people that we work with or in our own training. Now, through the course of this conversation, we went through the whole spectrum of questions, talking about the the factors that cause the ACL tear itself, who is at risk, what increases the likelihood of a tear and can we mitigate for different kinds of ACL tears such as contact, non-contact. Once we've assumed that guys are going to get injured, he and I discussed what are the best solutions to fix an ACL in terms of surgical intervention and also asking the question, is it always necessary for someone to get surgery following an ACL tear? Then we kind of finished up with the best process to go through when rehabbing an ACL tear, how we stop it happening again and how we can be sure through testing and screening to know that an athlete is completely ready to come back to the field of play. If you're in the middle of an ACL rehab right now, this is going to be invaluable listening, but even if you're not and you're looking to prevent them, I'd still give it a listen. Now, remember, if you like this podcast, be sure to check out the others, but also to check out the Rugby Strength Coach community. This is an exclusive online members community that I've created, especially for strength coaches. Inside, you're going to get access to hours and hours and hours are video webinars presented by elite coaches from all over the world in a variety of different sports. Each month, we hear from a new speaker who presents for an hour on a topic that is dear to their heart and that is important in the real world of coaching. This is not just what you get taught in your accreditation or at university. These are the real issues that face high level coaches day in and day out. Now, if you sign up for the community, you're gonna get access to all of that video lecture information, but also access to the online discussion area, where you can discuss hot topics within strength and conditioning, ask questions and share resources with over 250 members from all over the world at all levels of the game. Lastly, if you're an up-and-coming coach, we have a dedicated area within the community to discuss career development. You can ask guys who have been there, done it, brought the t-shirt. You can discuss how to prepare for interviews and practical tasks and get advice on how to develop your career. So if you're a strength coach and you would like to further your skills and take your career to the next level, be sure to visit RugbyStrengthCoach.com forward slash members. And when you get there, be sure to use the coupon code TRIAL and that is going to allow you to check out the website for just £1 for 24 hours. If you like it, keep it. You can become a fully fledged member. If you don't, just cancel it. There's no strings attached. But for now, sit back and enjoy the Rugby Strength Coach podcast with Dr. Tim Hewitt of the Mayo Clinic. Tim, how are you?
1: I'm doing well, Kier. Thank you.
0: Uh, thanks for uh, for doing the podcast. I have to say, I think you're one of the most published guys we've ever had on the um, the podcast. I checked out your uh, your research on ResearchGate, and it's something like 500 publications so far. So uh,
1: we're we're getting after it. Yeah,
0: you're, you're the, <laughs> we look
1: uh, at <laughs> we look at science the same way we look at sport. You know, <laughs> we're competitive <laughs> and uh, we like to produce.
0: I think you're the champion. Um, so people who've not heard of you before, um, who are you, what do you do, and, and how did you get to, to where you are now?
1: So I'm, I'm a PhD. I, uh, my PhD is in physiology, biophysics, and I'm now, uh, well, I, I spent many years in Cincinnati. I studied, I've been studying ACL injuries since the early 90s. And uh, moved to Ohio State several years ago and was the head of the Sports Health and Performance Institute at Ohio State. And about a year and a half ago, I moved to Mayo Clinic here in both Minneapolis and Rochester, Minnesota. And I'm the director of biomechanics and I'm the director of the Sports Medicine Research Center here at Mayo Clinic. So my interests are varied. Uh, So... We basically take a three-prong approach to everything we do. We, We try to figure out what the mechanisms of sports injury are that are responsible for these injuries, how they occur. Then we also take a screening approach to try to figure out who do they occur in and who is at increased risk for injuries. And then the third prong to it is related to intervention. Try to institute interventions that are based off the first two we know the mechanism of that injury we know who's who displays those mechanisms and is at increased risk and then we try to use targeted interventions to attempt to mediate and reduce that risk
0: so what are the big risk factors looking at you know kinematically kinetically and so on
1: so the big risk factors for primary acl injury are that that valgus medial inward collapse of the hip and knee Mm. that that's the biggest predictor that we've shown especially that is adaptable now there there are other predictors but most of those are not modifiable so you have to go back to your basic physics so the longer a lever is the more potential torque you can create so for example the longer your tibia is your shin bone the greater risk you have. The, the taller you are, the greater risk you have. It's kind of like the idea that the bigger you are, the harder you fall. Simple physics, that's that's real. So the, the greater your mass is, the greater your BMI, your body mass index. And then other modifiable factors like relative hamstrings to quadriceps peak torque and asymmetries in those. So those are the the biggest predictors that we've found for primary ACL injuries.
0: Is there a a, a racial or an ethnic element at all to that?
1: The only study that's been done on that was done in the NBA uh, and WNBA. And basically they showed at that level in NBA level athletes uh, that there was increased risk in blacks over Caucasians for ACL tears. Now, there, there might be a lot of other related issues to that, the other confounders. But also, there was a study based out of the US military where they showed for overuse type of knee injuries, Caucasians were more at risk and uh, more at risk for knee disability but that's more patellofemoral type pain not not acl so patellofemoral uh, knee osteoarthritis is more common in caucasians at least in a military population
0: yeah the reason i ask is because i used to work in australian rugby league before moving here and obviously it was just anecdotal and, and maybe you can sometimes see a pattern where there isn't one but having spoken to to physios there there's a lot of uh, Polynesian players within that league. And, you know, a physio said to me, he said, yep, Polynesian players are, are generally going to be a lot more likely to have that primary ACL, but then also um, tear the graft as well afterwards. Hence, hence. So there is the,
1: there is there is anecdotal uh, information like that. For, I have a I have a good friend who's an orthopedic surgeon, was at Harvard and he moved to the Middle East. He's uh, in Saudi Arabia now, and basically he believes that Middle Eastern people are at significantly higher risk. He 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 relates it to um, growing up, uh, crossing the legs a lot, uh, varus knees, more varus knees. Uh, he thinks that one of the reasons he moved his ACL practice there because he thinks it's the highest. Incidence of ACL injury anywhere. But the epi data doesn't really support that. So I was just down at Sports Medicine Australia in Melbourne where I was lecturing. And there were lectures there that demonstrated that Australia has actually per capita the highest risk, the highest level of ACLs of any country in the world by a fair amount. And I think that's mainly related to sports like... Aussie rules football and rugby.
0: Mm. Is is there an effect of uh, playing surface interaction with with the foot that can can have an effect?
1: There is. It's been that's been demonstrated. So, if you watch videos of people tearing their ACL, their foot is always flat while they're tearing it. So they land with their foot flat, which means they have a two things they have a very high ground reaction force going up toward their knee and their ligament but also that means their foot is fixed on the ground so when they twist their upper body what's going to twist is not their foot but their knee and so there's a few studies so there was one done by the nfl the national football league team physicians here in america which was published about two and a half years ago it was in the the summer of 14 in, in american journal of sports medicine and basically what they showed is these new sticky rubberized turfs with with uh, cleats or turf shoes have about a 64 percent increase risk of an ACL injury over grass in the NFL. They also showed there is about a 34 percent increase risk of a high ankle sprain. So anything that's going to be stickier, that's going to hold your foot down more so in, uh, in the Scandinavian countries, they did a study in, in, in women's team handball, which is a really high-risk sport. It's like footy for ACL, just like footy where you're going up high and you're landing and off off often getting your trunk perturbed, landing on one leg. In team handball, what you're doing is you're trying to juke or fake out your opponent. You jump up, you land on one leg and then twist your trunk and try to throw the ball around the opponent. Now, the the prevalence in elite women's team handball of ACLs is something like one in three, one in four, one in five in that range. So it's it's enormous. Now, what what they showed in that sport was versus wood, rubberized surfaces are significantly at higher risk. And again, that's when you land you land with your foot flat, and if you've got a lot of high friction. To where when you do turn that trunk, instead of the foot pivoting, what's going to happen is the knee's going to twist. And that combination, this is basically how your ACL tears. So this is your fibula. That's the outside of, of your uh, uh, knee joint, the outside of your lateral side of your leg. And basically what you have is a combination. Your foot slams down hold flat, holds to the surface. And then you get this combination of rotations. What happens is the hip and knee fall in, that that valgus or abduction. What's abducting is the distal tibia. It's moving away from the midline of the body. The lateral tibial plateau, now the lateral plateau is convex, both on the plateau side and the Uh, Meet and the lateral femoral condyle. So you've got two convex surfaces. They move very easily relative to one another. So what happens is the tibia on the lateral side anteriorly translates and internally rotates. And if those three happen very rapidly under a high ground reaction force pop, you get a rupture of your ACL. If those forces concomitantly are high enough, you have to think about, and where we can go with this with prevention is, Anything you're going to do, well, for screening an athlete, an athlete that shows those sort of kinematics during something like a drop vertical jump test, or if you're looking, anything you can do with an intervention that's going to decrease that inward drop of the hip and knee, internal rotation and anterior translation of the tibia on a flat fixed foot is going to reduce your risk of an injury. For example, simply landing On the ball of your foot, rather than flat down, is going to keep that foot from fixing your tibia against the ground so that when your trunk does rotate, the ball of your foot will rotate rather than your knee joint. The foot's designed, the ball of the foot's designed to rotate like that. The knee is not.
0: Absolutely. What what percentage, if you had to, say, distinguish between... uh, force characteristics or the teaching the mechanics of, of how to move and how to land and absorb of forces what weight would you put on each one and the importance of, of reducing ACL risk
1: Well that's hard to say because what really what tears ligaments is what what I'd call jolting forces or torques so a, a, a jolt is the force or the torque the acceleration of the acceleration of that force or torque very rapid applications really three aspects here there's the force which is is a big player the force applied rapidly but it's also how the force is applied relative to the center of rotation of the joint but again back to simple physics a torque And that's what tears a ligament rapidly applied is a force, say the ground reaction force times a distance to the joint center. And if applied very accelerating, very rapidly, it's that is what tears. So the kinematics are important because the, the distance. So if you have, for example, if you're collapsing like this. So your ground reaction force from the foot is directed up to the center of the mass here which is about your belly button, right? If you have a ground reaction force, you land flat on a foot, the ground reaction force is going to be high. A single leg is going to be multiples of your body weight, say landing from a basketball rebound or, or heading a soccer ball in the range per leg of two to three times body weights. because Physically, your body has inertia and your limb segments have inertia. So what happens is as you hit the ground, ground hits you back with multiples of your body weight because it's your body mass combined with the momentum and inertia of that mass, which multiply it. So the reason, so kinematics are important because If you land and you let your hip and knee start to collapse inwards, force times the, from the ground toward the center mass. If you start to increase that distance, so this is the kinematic driver. So this, the force is important because that's what's going to tear the ligament. But that distance from the force to the joint center causing this, that distance is related to the kinematics. So the kinematics multiplied by the forces rapidly or what tear so they all all three of those aspects into the formula so if you're going to reduce risk you have to reduce force you have to enforce kinematics that aren't going to allow inward drop of the the hip and knee combined with forward and internal rotation of the tibia also you're going to do things like reduce so you're going to reduce that lever arm, but you're also going to land on the ball of your foot and you're going to roll your foot. You're going to flex your hips and knees so that your ground reaction force is two things, significantly less, less force, less distance, less torque. And if you're using your musculature properly, if you're flexed, if you're landing on the ball of the foot, you're flexing your hip and your knee joint and you're controlling your trunk. What you're doing is dissipating that, not only dissipating, so the force is going to be less, but you're delaying that force. The force is going to be less rapidly applied to the joint and to the ligament. So there's all of those aspects, and they all factor into the equation, the risk equation.
0: So in in a nutshell, in terms of prevention, don't be fat, learn how to move, develop the the posterior musculature of the body and be able to produce large amounts of force in a short time working in opposition of what that knee wants to do
1: but it's and it's just not fat because high level athletes have high bmis right if you have yeah. a lot of muscle yeah. you have a high bmi that's why people think high level athletes maybe because they 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 have such a skill set that they may be at less risk but remember the risk factors i talked about long levers increased height increased body mass increased bmi that describes most high level athletes so high level athletes are actually at much greater risk and even the highest level athletes display some of the kinematics during a landing and takeoff These, this hip and knee drop and rotation of the tibia. So, and the other thing you have to think about is skill training in high-level sports. What you're doing is repetitively over years and years to enhance your skill, you're creating asymmetry, neuromuscular asymmetry to make you great at movements. Movements like taking off, movements like throwing a ball. For example, a tennis player who who swings with the right racket, their their it's Wolf's law, their bone actually grows. It gets bigger. The more force you repetitively put on that bone, it gets bigger. It creates an asymmetry that puts a tennis player at a potentially greater risk of injury or a baseball pitcher. But it also happens in a rugby player, or a football player when you're Repeating a skill, you may get more front loaded. You may you may become more asymmetric in an asymmetric front to back, anterior to posterior, side to side, or top to bottom. So sports, elite sports, elite sports practice skill training can actually create these neuromuscular asymmetries, and asymmetries are the best. Some of the best predictors of future injury, the best, the very best predictor of future injury is usually prior injury. But the, the next level of injury is really the asymmetries in relative force and torque and neuromuscular control. When we measure those, those those are the adaptable factors that play out as significant risk factors for injury.
0: So you mentioned Wolf's Law and obviously uh, tissue response to magnitude and direction of forces placed upon it. Is there any way that you're aware of to, to mitigate for a contact ACL tear? Because, you know, Touchwood, with with me and the teams that I've worked with, it's been three or four years since we had a non-contact. But, you know, normally you you can probably bank on getting one contact ACL a year. And there's, I was wondering, is there anything that we can do to try and strengthen that ligament before it happens to try and mitigate for that risk
1: so yeah there's there's a couple questions in there so first of all by far in in every sport non-contact is much more common somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of acl injuries are non-contact in nature which means they're internal to the body, they're related to the way the body moves, the way the muscles contract, the way the, the body is controlled neuromuscularly. Now, there are a percentage, obviously, that means 20 to 30 percent, somewhere between a fifth and a third are contact injuries, direct blows to the knee. So the question is, could you Use Wolf's Law. This this has been hypothesized that you could employ Wolf's Law. In order to do that, what you would have to do is do exercises that would preferentially load the ACL. Any exercise that, say, would anterior or translate the tibia or internally rotate it, anything that's going to put significant strain or put it in valgus, You would just have to be very careful about how you applied those loads. It has been hypothesized there's no evidence to say that you can actually do it.
0: Interesting. (laughs) Um, um, I was speaking to a a wrestle coach who Mm -hmm. uh, he actually dislocated his knee um, back in the day. But one of the things that he obviously anecdotally swore by was standing up, Collapsing his knees down into the floor standing back up and just progressing that again and again and again and
1: yeah, that's what he's doing So when he says collapsing he's collapsing in the hip and the knee joint. Mm -hmm. So he's doing he's he's Reproducing that mechanism, but at a very low uh, Rate Mm. so you have to it has to occur rapidly, right? Yeah, It's it's possible. It's possible. There's no real evidence you could do it. But if you could do it, that's the sort of way you would do it. You're reproducing. That's what I'm talking about. Loading the ligament in this manner with lower than injury threshold loads. Theoretically, Wolf's law does apply to ligaments. Theoretically, you could strengthen the ligament. Again, scientifically, there's no evidence that it can be done.
0: Okay, so that's uh, screening and prevention. Let's let's imagine the worst has happened now and the ACL is torn. What are the options available to an athlete in terms of different graphs and, and what are the, the, the benefits and, and disadvantages to, to each major type?
1: So the the big three are basically your... Uh, Patellar tendon graft. So that's, that's where you take a, uh, it's called a bone patellar tendon bone. So what you're doing is you're taking the middle third of the patellar tendon. So you're cutting, it's usually about, say, 10 millimeters, about a centimeter, right down the middle third of the patellar tendon. And then you're taking bone blocks from the patellar tendon and the tibial tubercle. And then you lift that up and you use that tendon as a substitute for your ligament the second option is your medial hamstrings so what you take is they take a reamer it's basically a a tube a metal tube with a cutting edge on the front of it and ram it up through they they cut here at the pes complex where five tendons come together they they separate out the the hamstring or the uh uh, semitendinosis and gracilis. That's called an STG, semitendinosis gracilis graft. And they run this cutting tube up your tendon and then pull it out. And then what they do is they double and then quadruple that, and that gets to be about 10 millimeters too, depending on the size of the individual. And they use that sort of cylindrical or stringy kind of hot dog shaped tissue to reconstruct your ACL. The third big option is an allograft. That means you're taking tissue, uh, from a cadaver, a deceased person. And depending, you can use anything. Um, a lot of people use Achilles tendon from cadavers or they'll use iliotibial band. Uh, and so those are the, the, the three main ones that there's problems with all of them. So, for example, bone, patellar tendon bone from a failure perspective is the best one. And that data is shown out. But there are problems with it because you're, you're taking a bone chunk from the patella and you're taking a tendon across the kneeling surface of your knee. So, for example, if you're in a, if you're a carpet layer or a tile layer, you don't want a bone patellar or tendon bone graft because you it's going to have, you're going to have anterior knee pain. And there are other individuals, people worry about individuals prone to uh, anterior knee pain. So, for example, girls and women are somewhere between two and ten times more prone to have patellofemoral pain than the men. Interestingly, that's the same ratio as ACL tears, and we can talk about that in prediction because a lot of the same predictive factors that predict an ACL tear predict risk of patellofemoral pain in, say, a, a running female. This inward collapse, that kind of movement. So, so you're going to stay away from a if you if you're on your knees a lot, you, you're going to worry about patellofemoral pain or If you already have patellofemoral pain, they a surgeon might stay away from using a bone patellar tendon bone. So then you go over to the hamstrings. And in the past, hamstrings have actually been used preferentially in women because women tend to preferentially have more anterior knee pain. The downside is in order to control this motion, your hamstrings. So, for example, the highest risk people per exposure, young adolescent girls, tend to underactivate their medial hamstrings musculature. They tend not only that it tends to be lax, so there's no pre-tensioning on the hamstrings muscles. And if they activate the hamstrings muscles, they tend to activate the lateral hamstrings. So if you're underactivating medial You'll lift this side up. If you're over contracting lateral, you'll pull this side together. What do you see there?
0: It's pushing it. Straight. So what you're,
1: what you're doing is taking an individual who's what we call quadriceps dominant tends to use their quadriceps to stabilize the knee joint and is, doesn't use the posterior chain, really doesn't activate, has relatively loose and relatively unactivated medial hamstrings. And then you're pulling those tendons out of there. They used to say within about two years, they would come back within 90-some percent strength. The latest data is showing, no, they don't. The, the, the tendons don't regrow. People thought, there, there's data actually out of Japan that says, look, if we look on uh, an MRI, it looks like the tendon comes back. It's It's scar tissue. It's fibrotic tissue. Tendons don't just grow back. What it is, is it's real dense, fibrous. It's actually bigger than the original tendon, but it's mostly scar. And if you look at it functionally, say in an ultrasound device, it's not contracting. The muscle's not contracting. The tendon's not displacing like a a normal tendon would. So That's that's issue with the hamstring graft, the allograft. Now, the advantage to the allograft is you don't have to take any of your own tissue. You don't have to take the front of your patellar tendon. You don't have to pull out your hamstrings. It's a much faster rehab because it's less painful because you're not taking your own tissue. But that's a problem because. These things fail much more often in. If you're young, athletic, and going back to the same level of sport, allografts fail at, in the range of three to four times the rate of autographs, either a bone tendon bone or a patellar tendon. Allografts are really for people, say, post their sporting days. Someone who really doesn't want to take a tissue you know, and have the, the pain of that you know, the morbidity of the uh, donor site from their own tissue, but is, you know, maybe is going to play golf or tennis, but isn't going to load that knee to a real high degree. Then then maybe you're OK, although recent data from our so we've been tracking for over 40 years. So so the main Mayo Hospital sits in uh, Rochester, Minnesota, which sits in Olmstead County. We've been collecting since the late 60s, all the injuries, all the surgeries, all the patients that occur in the entire county. What we showed is allographs in the 40s do okay in people, but they fail later on when they're in their 50s and 60s. So if you're still active, allographs are not a good idea. If you're kind of a couch potato and you're not planning on doing a lot out on a quarter on a field, an allograph may be okay. That's the problem with an allograft. It's high failure rate.
0: Would the is it the Lars ligament is very popular in Australia? That would come under that third category, right?
1: That would actually be a fourth category called synthetics. Okay. So, so the the problem is there's as I was uh, at the uh, the AOA, the Australian Orthopaedic Association. Uh, and then we, uh, it was in Darwin, which I found out that not even Charles has been to Darwin. <laughs> there's not much there. <laughs> but no, but then we moved, we moved out to Hamilton Island for the AKS, which is the Australian Knee Society. So that was beautiful, obviously, despite all the signs of don't go out here because there's stinging jellies and don't go out here because there could be great whites and don't go here because. You're going to die. <laughs> but anyway, we, we were in a beautiful, uh, uh setting. And the, at the Australian Knee Society, there was one surgeon from, from Perth, Australia, who showed amazing, large results, like 90 plus percent success rates. But then where, there were three surgeons from different areas of Australia that showed exactly the opposite, horrible, like 30 40% failure rates. There is an alternative ligament, and that's the quadriceps tendon. So in that case, instead of going below the kneecap, you go above the kneecap, and you take all oh, about the middle quarter of your quadriceps tendon, and one side of it has the bone plug from the patella. That way, you don't have the disadvantage of someone who's in a kneeling sport or a kneeling op- occupation. They're not going to kneel on it. And there is some preliminary data. This is uh, Julian Feller and Kate Webster's work out of Melbourne. They're showing some really good results early on with quad tendon grafts. And and Jimmy Cook, who's a good buddy of mine at Missouri, he changed over I've been advocating quad tendon grafts for several years because of the the advantages and the lack of disadvantages. And he switched over. He's a, he's one of the most prolific ACL vets in the United States. He actually, before you sign up for your dog to have their ACL repaired, you have to sign a contract that says you're going to put them through rigorous rehab. They actually have doggy rehab. So this, but this guy switched over two uh, quad tendons and he says that not only this is getting to be two years out, not only that as he had no rupture problems, he has no osteoarthritis, which is unheard of. So a dog's stifle joint is really from anterior to posterior it really drops off. So what happens is when they lose their ACL or the ACL comes insufficient, what happens this happens. And what happens is all that increased micromotion in that joint, they go on to osteoarthritis like this within six months. Claims with the quad tendon grafts, he doesn't, at two years out, he doesn't see any osteoarthritis, which is amazing. So there, there is that. So I said there were three. I always say there are three of everything because everything good comes in three. But there's really about five different potential options. And I think people need to consider all of them for their unique situation.
0: Within rugby, you hear, you know, of, of odd players here and there of guys that have, have completely ruptured an ACL, but then for whatever reason have been able to carry on without a surgical intervention. What is it do you think sets those Absolutely. guys apart from the others that allows them to, to do that?
1: Neuromuscular control, they don't naturally allow their bodies to collapse into that valgus position and rotate their tibia forward and in. So this is called the rule of thirds. And And basically what it said, it, it followed the natural history of people who didn't reconstruct their ACL. And basically what it said was this. About a third of people are able to go back to high-level sports without an anterior cruciate ligament. About a third can go back to activities of daily living, like walking, stair climbing, without an anterior cruciate ligament. But if they try to go back to sport, they're going to have giving ways and problems, not be able to control the stability of that knee joint. And then a third just have to have surgery. They're just unstable, even in activities of daily living, like walking or stair climbing. So in the, that's in the short term, at least. In the short term, about a third of people, because they have, and they've been termed by Lynn Snyder Mackler and, and Michael Axe and the group of Delaware, they've been termed copers. They can basically use their musculature, like their hamstrings to control this kind of movement. So the, the problem is, the, the debate there is, well, if you have a giving way episode, even if you are a coper, but because you don't have that ligament, there's the potential for this increased motion in the joint that you could tear something else like your meniscus which is the shock absorber of your knee so people who do this take a risk but i can tell you i know many many surgeons the guy in the office next door to me is 58 years old he still plays volleyball and soccer and he doesn't have an acl for about 35 years I've known, I know more than a handful of surgeons, guys who are expert ACL surgeons who've never had their ACL reconstructed because they're copers, because they can, and, you know, in America and Australia, we immediately go to surgery. I think the Scandinavian countries actually have it right in that because they're in a socialized healthcare system, they have to get on a list so you don't just go and get your ACL unless you've got a whole lot of money, but it, it's a, for the most part in Scandinavian, it's all socialized. So you get on a list and it takes like nine to 12 months to, to have your ACL reconstructed. So they have you go through a, a, a period of trial of function. So they actually test you out, hopping, running, doing athletic movements to see if you can do that. Without giving way. And some people do rehab quite well. And here's the reality of it. The big downstream problem is osteoarthritis. Whether you reconstruct your knee or not, you're going to get in the, with the current paradigm, with the current treatments, somewhere between 50 and 100% are going to get osteoarthritis, regardless of whether you reconstruct the ACL or not. And the reality is, the big cohort studies that have been done actually show slightly more risk of OA in the operated knee than the unoperated knee. Now, what the surgeons will say, well, that's just because because they had their knee operated, they they played more sport, they played harder, they were exposed more, and that that may or may not be. There was there's a recent study based out of Scandinavia that controlled for activity and still showed more. Osteoarthritis in the surgical knee than those who didn't have surgery. So it's not a foregone conclusion that if you rupture your ACL that you have to go on to ACL surgery.
0: Is, is there any way to prospectively try and understand who may be a copa and, and who might not be? Because thinking about my environment, you know, we're in professional sport. Is there a way that? an athlete gets an ACL injury we can say well hang on do we want to lose nine months by definitely getting the surgery or do we want to spend two or three of those months actually trying to figure out whether this is completely necessary and maybe get the athlete back sooner
1: there there absolutely is there there absolutely is a way to do that so this this was developed by the Delaware group Lynn Snyder-Mackler and Michael Axe it's called the Delaware Protocol Now, they combined with the group in Oslo, and they've been doing these prospective studies and making comparisons of those who don't have surgery with those who do have surgery. And they have a series of tests, many of them based out of the early work that was done in Cincinnati based off four different hop tests. But they also do a strength test and they do pros or patient reported outcomes And they combine these and there was a a recent paper in by Grindham et al just published a few months ago that showed that those who went through and went through this protocol and were tested as copers and then were released to to sport, whether they had surgery or not, based off these different uh, return to sport tests. Had significantly less risk of a second tear. So, yes, there, that, that data is out there. I would, I would encourage you to look at Lynn Snyder Mackler and Michael Axe's data based out of Delaware and then the Grindham paper that was recently published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine in 2016, about two months ago.
0: Awesome. So, post surgery return to play. What, in your opinion, is is the gold standard of of a, a quantitative criteria to say, yep, someone's ready to come back?
1: We absolutely don't have it. <laughs> That's the problem. And we're we're actually we and so the Delaware group, the Oslo group, uh, we're collaborating with the Melbourne group, Julian Feller and, and Kate Webster, to try to develop a gold standard. We're working with the group at Missouri. Uh, obviously the group at Mayo is are leaders in this and we're trying to come up with a gold standard, but we're not there yet because what you have, as is the case in much of strength and conditioning and rehab is you have different experts recipes, but they're not validated. And that's what we have to do next. No, the, the Delaware approach and the Cincinnati approach have some validation to them. So use of those four hop tests. So are you aware of those? There's the single leg hop for distance. You're looking for symmetry. So on each of these, you're, lo- you're looking for symmetry with the so-called normal leg. Now, there's a problem with the so-called normal leg. Because of afferent-efferent feedback loops that are spinal level, you create, after you rupture your ACL on one side, you lose the mechanoreceptors in that ligament. You, you, you lose sensation of the joint what happens is because you can't increase that because anatomically you don't have those mechanoreceptors anymore that deficit because your body to be most efficient it needs to move symmetrically when you walk when you climb stairs so what happens is those neural deficits are actually transferred over to the other side so when you you so when you're using your uninjured leg as a control it's not great you have to use that as a control and you have to use some kind of, uh, control database of similar types, you know, anthropometrically types of players. So what you do is single leg hop for distance. You use a, a crossover hop. Those are really the two best. They have the best validity. And then you use, uh, another one is the timed hop and, and then, uh, the, the timed hop for distance. So, they, they do incorporate that, and then they incorporate strength. So you're going to want to look at relative quad strength symmetry side to side, and you're going to want to look at relative ham quad symmetry, both front to back and side to side. You need to be up over 90% there. And then uh, so, so there should be a, a sort of neural component, a strength component, and then a, a patient reported outcomes uh an objective patient rating scale of here's my pain level here's my swelling level here's here's my psychology here's how much how afraid i am of returning to that sport so when you combine those all together you're going to get something that's reasonably valid valid but that validation still has to occur what's
0: what's the future going to be what do you think the next big thing is going to be for, for ACL research?
1: The future is going to be screening individuals to figure out who's at risk of a second tear. So basically, we did, we did this study. We published it about six years ago. Basically, those individuals that internally rotate their hips at landing, this is off a drop vertical jump test, dropping down off a, a 31 centimeter of one foot high box and going into so it needs to be a maximum vertical jump. They need to have they need to have a target set at their maximal uh, jump height so that they're focused on the athletic movement. They're focused on performance. If they have increased hip internal rotation, if they have increased knee valgus, if they have side to side differences in relative ham quad activation, And if they have a stiffening strategy on their involved limb when they're trying to balance showing that they don't have good sensation of that knee joint, they are at significantly higher risk. Just those four variables, we could predict 94% of the variability with 92% sensitivity, 88% specificity. That's who's at risk. The future is taking that information. Designing post rehab, post rehab. So after, after they've gone through their main PT, they're, they're handed off to you guys, the strength coaches, and you guys take these very targeted interventions targeted to those specific deficits that predict second risk. And then we see in this highest risk, remember these are the highest risk population. They have the factors that led into that injury both the non-modifiable and modifiable factors, intervene with them and see if we can reduce that risk. We know for primary tears, targeted interventions can reduce risk between a half and two-thirds. The question is, in the highest risk population, how much can we reduce it? I'm guessing somewhere between a quarter and a half, but we don't know that. Remember, these are the problem is and Kate Webster's work shows this, Julian Feller's work, uh, Lynn Snyder Mackler's work, Diane Dom's work basically shows that if you're young, active, and going back to the same level of sport, your risk of a second ACL tear is somewhere between a quarter and a third. It's enormous. These kids have to know this, they have to be screened for risk factors, and they have to be prepared as best they possibly can before they're released to go back to sport because their risk of tear going back to the sport is somewhere between a quarter and a third of a second ACL tear.
0: And presumably it goes up with every tear thereafter.
1: Yes. Kate Webster's just looking at data now out of the uh, OrthoSport Victoria cohort, huge. They do over 650 ACLs a year. The risk of a third ACL tear is another 35 to 40% again. So enormous, scary, scary data.
0: That's awesome. Um, I'm acutely aware that we're running out of time here, so um, where can people find you online, Tim?
1: They can uh, find me online uh, if they look up uh, mayo.edu. Just search my name, Timothy uh, Hewitt, or on Twitter, I have like four different accounts. I like to like myself. I'm the only one that's willing to do it. So it's Hewitt1Tim is the one that I use most often.
0: Cool. Um, Thank you very much for your time. Massively appreciate it.
1: You're more than welcome. It was great fun, Kier.
0: Cheers. I'll talk to you soon.